In this series, we're learning how to pray from the Lord's Prayer. If you'd like to grow in your practice of prayer, you can find some basic resources on our website at citizenselmira.ca under the resources heading. So the title of this message is On Earth As It Is in Heaven. And here's the, the, the big idea that I would like to kind of work through as we look at this verse this morning, and it's this, that our prayers act as a disruptive force for God's will in this world. A week and a half ago, I was uh, traveling and flying to the States, and um, I don't know about you, but going to airports can be kind of fun because you get to people watch. I don't know if you like people watching, but you get to see all kinds of styles and different things that people do and the way that they act. Um, I was standing in line behind a guy who had these big boots. They were about yay high, and they were like croc boots. I thought they were croc boots. They looked like a croc bottom, but then plastic all the way to the top. And I was like, man, those look super comfy. And he was like, yeah, they are. And so I looked them up when I got home. I was like, what kind of boots are these? And I saw them. You can get them on Neiman Marcus. This fancy store, 950 bucks, okay? And he is just like clogging around in the Atlanta airport, you know, loving life. And um, the other thing I noticed about traveling in airports is that everybody is deathly bored, okay? Just, you know, there's only so many stores you can go into with whatever Americana stuff or Canadian stuff and maple syrup sold for 20 bucks, whatever. But everybody is bored, even though we're doing something amazing, like flying in a plane and going somewhere, you know, where, you know, no other generation ever in the history except for the last, you know, 100 years or last 75 years has been able to do what we're doing, and we're just dying of boredom, and everybody's just looking at their phones and watching videos and just killing time. But let's be honest, when it comes to prayer, many of us think prayer is deathly boring, and our experience with prayer may be adding some validity to that. You know, it's just so deadly boring and it's so much drudgery. And so the scriptures um, over and over and over again are, are beckoning us, they're calling us to have a greater vision for what prayer actually is. And in John's prophetic book of Revelation, we get glimpse doing. So I would just want to read some verses for you to give you a fresh view of what prayer is doing and what it will do in the future. In Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, it says this. With all this prophetic language going on, it says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. How about that? Silence. Nothing. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Verse 5 says this, Then the angel took censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder rumblings flashes of lightning and an earthquake so for us non-jewish people 
here's what John is trying to get us to see. The Jewish mind would automatically see this. This is prophetic language picturing Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. The one day a year where the high priest would go into the temple, into the most holy of holies, and what he would do, you can, you can read the description in Leviticus 16, where they would take the coals and the embers from the sacrificial pit, which was constantly burning the sacrifices of the people. And they would then enter into the sanctuary and take some incense from the table of incense, and on the Day of Atonement, take a large amount, it says, And they would put it onto those coals as they enter into the Holy of Holies, the place that the high priest would only enter into once a year. And that act of the coals and the incense together would create this huge plume of smoke which would fill the Holy of Holies, which was meant to be this connection in a a physical way for the high priest to see the prayers going up, And now John is saying, okay, this Jewish picture of atonement now brought in together with the prayers of the saints. And what does it do in verse 5? It brings all of these things as part of the, the end times judgment that actually God is working out. And Robert Mulholland says this, that the result is thunder, voices, lightning, and earthquake, all biblical images of the disruptive presence of God in the fallen world. John's vision is a powerful representation of the nature of prayer. Prayer is the, an act by which the people of God become incorporated into the presence and action of God in the world. So John is saying this is actually what prayer is going to be doing. God, when he does his final judgment is actually joining together with the work of the saints. And so our prayers act as a disruptive work in this world for God's will. A greater vision than what many of us are used to. And so Jesus, in this prayer, is trying to get the disciples to see it. And throughout the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament are constantly trying to give us a greater vision for prayer. And, and last week we learned that, you know, prayer is primarily, as, as its starting point and the foundation of it, is a relational act. That God is our Father. We are in communion with Him. So part of this family relationship with God is that we, hey, we talk to Him. And we acknowledge who He is, that He is hallowed. And we talked last week about what was our one step going to be. If we are, you know, at this point, whatever that point is for you, in terms of our prayer relationship with God, how can we grow in one step in the area of prayer in our Christian lives? So today we're looking at verse 10. And uh, if you have your Bible, you can open it just to look at the text itself, or we'll have the scriptures up there. But verse 10 says this, just as a reminder that we just read it. It says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So we have decided to go through Matthew's gospel. And Matthew has a bias to how he's writing. And every gospel writer has a bias. And every writer in the New Testament and the Old has a bias. And Matthew, his bias is he wants the reader to see one big idea. 
And it's this, that Jesus is king. So he has put together the whole gospel in a way that is not always chronological, but in a way that will just regularly tell us, and hopefully you come to the end of it, and you say, one thing I know is that Matthew wants me to think Jesus is the king. And so this idea of the king is coming up over and over again. And it's an idea that is very old. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll see the desire of the nation of Israel to have a king. In 1 Samuel, it tells the story of how the nation came to Samuel and they said, okay, Samuel, we want a king. And what they weren't asking for was actually that God would be their king. They said, we want a king, like, like another person who can sit on a throne and who can lead us like all the other nations. And Samuel said right away, this is a bad idea. Okay, I don't, he's like, I don't like this idea. And he asks God and basically says to God, God, I think this is a bad idea, but this is what the people want. And so God says, let them have their earthly king and explain to them what it's going to be like to live under a earthly king. And so Samuel does that. He explains what it's going to be like for them to live under that. And so throughout the Old Testament, as you read the stories and as you go through it, you see that they struggle under this kingship. Sometimes it's going well. Sometimes it's going poorly. Ultimately, in the end, it leads to the ruin of the nation, and they are led away to Babylon. And by the time they come back, and as we kind of step into the New Testament, what the nation is wanting again is a Messiah to come, to resolve their issue. Not again to have God as their king present there. That's, that's, like, that's a good part too, they would probably say. But really what they want is someone to come in to rule like a good king who can kick out the Romans and just give us this land back. So if we would look at it as a, in chart form, what the nation was really wanting was, here's this old age, which is their history, Old Testament, and now they're kind of coming out of this dark period of hundreds of years of no prophetic voice, and all they're wanting now is Messiah to come. Would the Messiah come and break into our reality a kingship that would kick out the Romans? But what we see happening, actually, through Jesus' life is more this second chart, which is that the Messiah actually comes, and the incarnation is real, and he is rejected by his own people. He's rejected by Israel. And so he dies on a cross for all of our sins, for the sins of the Jew and the Gentile, for everyone. And then he is risen to new life, which we just celebrated a few weeks ago, and he goes back to be with the Father. And then as the New Testament kind of writes and explains it. It says there's coming a day where he's still coming, where all these Old Testament promises of a literal kingship, of Christ ruling on the planet here are still yet to come and be, but they have not happened yet. And so there's coming a time, you can see there where a second coming is going to happen. He's going to come. He's going to literally come back. And then a literal kingdom is begun and eternity begins. And so we live in this space now. You can see it in the now there. We're kind of in the in-between where not everything is totally fulfilled yet. We're still waiting for things to happen. But uh, Christ is king. Now listen, 
there's a lot of disagreement on this, okay? Like a lot of people like um, to read end time stuff and they'd be like, that chart is wrong, you know, and they would know exactly why it's wrong. So there's a lot of disagreements on all the end time stuff, but here's one thing everybody agrees on, okay? Now we can all relax. Here's what everybody agrees on still. Christ has not returned yet. Christ has not returned yet. He is not here. It's very clear in the scriptures that it says Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And that is where he is ruling from. So here's what's clear. Christ has not come yet. So that second coming is still yet to come. But here's something that else that we do know. And it's this, that Christ is king. He is king. We're not waiting for that to happen. It is a reality. And so we are here as God's people, and we are a people in waiting. And I don't know about you, but waiting is hard. Because when you're waiting and things are going really good, you kind of forget that you're waiting, because you're just enjoying all the goodness that comes with it. And when you're waiting and things are going really bad and life is difficult, you just want relief. But we are called to be a people, God's people, who are a people in waiting. And we are waiting in a specific way, and that is we are waiting in hope. Because we know that Christ is king. So, whether we are in Canada, whether we are in China, whether we are in Norway, it doesn't matter where we are, we know Christ is king. Whether life is going really good, or whether life is just kind of mediocre, or whether life is going really bad, we are told Christ is king. We're not waiting for that to happen. That has happened. Christ is king. We're waiting for him to come back and to be here to establish his earthly kingdom. But Christ is king already. So no matter our circumstances, we're called here in this prayer to pray, your kingdom come. Yes, Lord, we know that you're king. You're seated at the right hand of the Father. But man, we want everything to be wrapped up. We want Jesus present here. We want all of eternity to, to be wrapped up and everything that we just read a little bit in Revelation to be totally done. So Lord, would your kingdom come. But in the waiting, we are waiting with expectant hope. So we pray, your kingdom come. And then he says, your will be done. And this may be a debatable point, but I think that may be the most difficult point in the whole prayer. I think this one, so we're going to park on this one for a bit, okay? Because this one, maybe it's just for me, so we're going to park here just for me. But this is really difficult. Your will be done. Throughout the whole first two verses here, we are not the primary focus of it. Our problems are not primary in this prayer up until this point. Everything that we've been praying so far in these first two verses is pointing to God. God is the one who is getting all the attention and all the focus. Now for much of the last, I don't know, 500 years maybe, um, churches were built into like the center of town. Okay, so for in, in most of Europe and even in North America, the way it worked was the church, and you can even see it in Elmira here, there's a number of old churches that were built right at the center of town. This one is here, 
There's one that's behind us that's an old church, 100 years old or something, and it's downtown. And so the church was built downtown. So I, I got this picture of, of what churches will still often look like in Europe that are like hundreds of years old. And here's what was happening at that time. You would have a church in the center of town or near a town, and you would have a minister there, and he would have a parish that he would oversee, 500 people maybe, that he was taking care of. And there was a cycle of life that was connected to actually this building. So you would be born into a family, obviously, okay? And the family would take you into this church building, and you would be blessed, or you would be christened, or you would be baptized. And then you would grow up having gone to church there. And then you wouldn't leave for some adventurous life. You would grow up in that town. You stayed there. And you then would go to that church as a young adult, and then you would get married in that church, and then if you were to have a child, you would bring your child, and you would have that child baptized or christened or blessed. Then you would grow old in that church, and ultimately you would die in that town, and you see all those cemeteries in there? You would be buried in the yard of the church. Now listen. Every Sunday, as you walked into that church, and especially, that's why I picked this picture, because it was perfect. Every Sunday, you would walk by the graves of previous parishioners. And you would be reminded, if you were paying attention, every week, that that was your lot in life as well. That death was the calling of every single person. And if you went to church, in that church, you had a place that was waiting for you. And there was many messages that would come along with that, but basically here's the, here's the biggest message, I think, that comes with the idea of death, and that is this. We are not gods. And we are not God. Every single one of us has an expiration date. Every single one of us has a day where we will also be placed into the ground. Okay, that's morbid, all right? But that's, that's the fact of it. And many generations over, since the beginning of time, have thought, we're the generation that's going to beat it. Like, we're going to eat the Mediterranean diet, or we're going to have, you know, a microchip put into our brain, or whatever it is, okay? And there might be something that lets us live for 300 years. But so far, every single person has died that has ever lived. And so, when we're told here in the Scripture your will be done, we're reminded that we are not God. God's will of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take this to heart. The living should take this to heart. So God's will over ours is not a contest that we win, but it's something we fight constantly. We're constantly fighting against what is God's will for our lives. So if th those of you who have um, kids or had kids, uh, there's a number of babies, you know, in the church here, you'll know that when you bring the baby home from the hospital, it's, it's wonderful, right? It's a, a great moment. You're super happy. But then very quickly you discover this child is like a little fighter. You know, there's like, there's, everything is a fight with this child. And especially when it comes to sleep. So you do everything you can. You feed the child, you burp the child, you change the diaper, 
You get the blankets just right, and still they're fighting sleep. And you're rocking them, and you can sometimes see they're fighting sleep. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you maybe whisper in your head, or maybe you whisper out loud, you won't win. It will, it will win. Eventually, sleep will win. And men, we are like that as well. With life, with our plans, with all the things that we think God should do with us. And, and life has a way of telling us, you won't win if it's your plan. You won't get your way if it's your plan. And we easily bring this even into our Christian lives and into the Christianese even of, of church culture. We do the things that we think to bring about what we might think is, on the outside we might say is God's will, but really on the inside it's our will. And so in Acts chapter 21, Paul gives this amazing, he retells a story of this missionary journey that he's on. And in Acts 21, verse 4, Paul says like they were in uh, modern-day Lebanon, and they had, it says that they had a prayer meeting on the beach in Tyre where the women were there, the kids were there, everybody's there kneeling on the beach praying for Paul. How about that, eh? That's a practice of prayer. That's pretty good. Everybody's there praying for him. Oh, Paul, may God's will be done in your life. So Paul goes on to Caesarea, and then it says this in verse 10. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem, the Gentiles. Man, we might think that's a little weird. But someone picked up Paul's belt, wrapped him up and said, Whoever's belt this is, this is what's going to happen to the guy. And it goes on to say in the text that everybody was like, Don't go, Paul. Don't, don't keep going. Just stay here. There's probably plenty of ministry to do here. That doesn't sound good. Whether or not that's true or not, we don't know. But that tying up with a belt, that does not sound good. But ultimately, Paul says, I'm going. You can't stop me. And then in verse 14, they say, and since he would not be persuaded. So they're trying, right? They're like, Paul, no. We don't want to read a prayer letter that talks about you being tied up. So that since they could not be persuaded, it says that we ceased, these are the people there, and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. Your will be done. Man, it's so tempting to pray for all kinds of stuff and to ask God to do everything that we're hoping in all of our dreams. And then when the plan turns and when it gets hard and when we don't like it, I'm just like these guys. I'm like, that probably means that we got to be doing something else. What we've been asking the Lord for is probably the wrong thing. Lord, isn't it this? But the prayer is reminding us to pray, your will be done. Lord, your will. Not my will. Your will. And we'll see in a minute, it doesn't mean that we don't bring anything to this. We bring ourselves to it. We bring our circle dances and, and everything to it. And God's going to use all that. But here we're told to pray, your will be done. And this is where, from last week, where if you don't have a fatherly connection, if you can't say, our Father in heaven, if you don't have that security of relationship, that he is your Father, it makes the, the challenging will of God before us almost impossible. 
because ringing in Paul's minds would have been Romans 8.35, the words that he himself penned, where it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37 says, No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul says, no matter what happens in my life, when God's will is done, I'm secure in his love. And the prayer is that when we say, Lord, your will be done, is that we would stand in the security of that love for us. So how, do we, how does God get bigger in our lives? He gets bigger through the work of his spirit within us. When we say yes to the spirit within us, we hear louder his voice. And, and scripture tells us this. When we say no to the spirit, like God is leading us in some way, his voice gets quieter and quieter and quieter till the point where it could even be like, like Paul says, it becomes calloused. It's hard. When God speaks to you, it won't penetrate. It, it's going to work really hard to get through to you. So the more we say yes to God, the more we hear from him. Another way that God grows big is through his word, through reading the scriptures and hearing the testimony of God's people and through the living word coming into our minds and into our hearts, it actually softens us to what God is doing. And finally, through his people, through the testimony of listening to people and hearing as they've chosen to follow the will of God in their lives, you hear the testimonies, it strengthens you, it gives you, you know, the ability to maybe take your own step. So, through his spirit, through his word, and through his people. We are, in this series, we're really asking collectively that question. Would we open our hearts to the spirit of God leading us? Would we follow God into his will for us? And would we do it actually with, with gladness and openness that he can, he can do some magnificent, some miraculous things even through the prayers of his people? So then the verse ends with the, the last word, which is this, on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. So this is actually where it gets really practical, where the prayer then opens up this idea of God using our lives to, to bring in, in some way, the presence of heaven onto earth here. Not everything, of, not everything of heaven can come down to us, but here we are, his people, called by him, in his family, under his kingship, living in towns and working in places. So how do we, ent how do we get the, the practice of prayer to grow in our lives? So throughout... Um, history, God's people have practiced prayer in all kinds of different ways, and they have struggled to practice prayer in all kinds of different ways. So our struggle now is that we live in the world of YouTube and social media, okay, so that's our problem. But like a hundred years ago, they struggled with like the newspaper and television, okay? And back in the, you know, 1500s, it was like new books were being printed. So there's always been some sort of distraction, but throughout history, God's people have put into practice regular daily prayer. So starting in the Old Testament, and let me just do like a quick historical sweep here. 
in the Old Testament, we see that God's people practiced regular daily prayer. A, a good example is the book of Daniel, where we see Daniel in exile and what he has in the practice and the regular routine of his life is three times daily prayer. So morning, midday, evening. And Daniel is committed, if you know the story, no matter what, whether you try to kill me or not, these things are a regular part of my life and my connection to God. As a person in exile, three times a day, regularly praying. And as we come into the New Testament, we see in the life of Jesus also a regular rhythm of prayer in his life. Probably, it's, it's not explicit, but probably a three times daily prayer as well. There's, you know, over 17 times where we see a description of Jesus going off to pray. It's often in the evening times, but it's believed that Jesus also practiced this regular morning, midday, evening prayer. As we come into the book of Acts, you see God's people regularly praying. I just mentioned one in Acts 21 where they're praying on the beach. And God's people are often and regularly praying corporately together as churches and as individuals, trying to put into practice this idea of unceasing prayer. So by the time we get into the early, you know, two, three hundreds A.D., you've got the monastics who took this, like, next level, okay, they were like, prayer, three times a day? I don't think so. They were like, eight times a day, okay, every, about every three hours. And so it's actually uh, said that the monastics kind of grew in popularity, but then when this, like, discipline of eight times a, a day happened, some of their numbers began to shrink a little bit, and some monasteries closed, okay? So you're like, yeah, I'd be leaving, you know, eight times a day, three in the morning. But they were trying to bring in some sort of rhythm of prayer into their lives, by about 1500, Thomas Cranmer, who was a theologian and the Bishop of Canterbury, writes what is still used today is the Book of Common Prayer. And in that book, he writes a collection of prayers and uh, biblical reflections that are, again, calling God's people to do two primary things. To read the whole Bible in a year, and also to pray, now in, in Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, it's to pray twice a day. So getting, trying to get God's people to pray twice a day. And it was a book that was filled with uh, written prayers so that you could just read that prayer as your own. Or it also had these kind of open prayer topics where you would just extemporaneously pray to God. So by the time we come to this century, the century that we're living in, or maybe the, the last century, okay, um, what comes to popularity is what most of us would know, or at least would be familiar with the phrase, is a quiet time, okay? This is kind of where we landed in the last 100 years, a quiet time where once a day there would be some sort of focus on someone's spiritual life. Who grew up with a quiet time? Did anybody do a quiet time? okay. Wow, not that many hands. Okay, maybe a quiet time was like, I did a bit of a quiet time, or it was like a bit of an idea, okay? And the thought was, I think its primary focus was that you would read the Bible every day, but it also had associated with it a time of prayer, some sort of time to put into practice getting God's Word into your life, and also a life of prayer. So, 
What is your practice today? There's 2,000 years of history, just some highlights. Let me ask you this. What is it that is dictating the activities of your day? What is it that's setting the pace for your life? Is it your job being there? Is it the emails that you have to answer? Is it, is it the meals that you have to make? I don't know what it is. There's a lot of things that all of us have to do, you know, Monday through Friday, and then also on the weekends, and depending on your schedule, when you work or when you don't work, there's a lot of things that are driving our schedule. But what if at the center of your life, what if one of the driving forces of your life was a deep commitment to God through his word and through a life of prayer? And maybe you're thinking that's, that's not even possible because of the busyness of your life. But what if, just what if, this was a season where you actually took one step towards making God the center of your day and of your life. Where something like a daily rhythm of prayer, like we talked about last week, about saying the Lord's Prayer daily as a starting point to prayer. Or maybe even doing something which for you would be radical, like entering into your life rhythm a three times daily prayer. Or maybe a twice daily prayer. Or maybe at lunch, when you're sitting in the lunchroom, when everybody else is watching YouTube or playing games, you spend 30 seconds in silent prayer. What if God and his work would actually become a center point to your life? Where we would pray that his will would be done. The, the result then, I believe, is that your eyes would begin to open you to what God is doing around you and maybe even what he wants you to be involved in. Biblical theologian and writer Warren W. Wearsby says this, Prayer prepares us for the proper use of the answer. That's what prayer is doing. When we put prayer into our lives, when we practice this conversation with God, it opens our eyes to what he's actually doing, and it prepares us for maybe us being a part of it, or maybe us just witnessing his work. And so this relational connection to, to God, our Father, through prayer, opens our eyes to what he is doing. In Acts chapter 1, again, let's, we'll close with this. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples are seeing, they're experiencing the resurrected Jesus. They've eaten meals with him. They've been with him. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they, they said, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So they're asking about the kingdom. They're like, Lord, you told us to pray this prayer. Your kingdom come. So you're resurrected. You're here. This must be it. And then Jesus begins to, he literally like floats away from them. And they're kind of like, ah, we see this kingdom thing. And it's not happening. They float away. And, and what does it say to them? That he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He says, don't worry about all the details of the kingdom. Here's, here's what you need to know. 
The plan is through you. That's the plan, through you. So he says, pray, we're told, pray that your will would be done, and that will is accomplished through his people. D.L. Moody was a, is still a a very well-known evangelist, and it, it says, I was looking it up this week, that he preached to over 100 million people during his time of ministry. 100 million people. And he was active, and he was out there. He was, I mean, he was doing the work of an evangelist, and yet his whole strategy, when people would ask him, his whole strategy was based on one thing, he would say, based on prayer. He's like, that is the, the, the baseline for my ministry. And it's well known that he had in his jacket pocket a list of a hundred names that he would pray for on a daily basis. And he would pull that list out, he would pray for them. A hundred people who he knew that they did not have a relationship with Christ. And the story goes, and I'm assuming that this story is accurate, that other people have done their research on this. The story goes that at his funeral, someone had found that list and they looked it over And they found that 96 of the people on that list had come to know Christ. 96 people on that list. That's pretty good. 96%. That's pretty good, you know, do the math on that. 96. And then the amazing thing is that the four people who were left were actually at his memorial. They were there. And it says that they were so moved by the memorial that at the funeral, they gave their lives to Christ. Daily regular, unknown until the end of his life, work of love, put them in prayer. Now listen, I'm not saying the application from this message is make a list of 100 people and put them in your pocket every day. You may want to do that, and God may honor that. But here's the point of it. Prayer is the disruptive work of God in our world. Prayer can change lives. Prayer can reach people who we would say are unreachable. Prayer can restore relationships. We are going to be active. God is going to use us. We're the plan. God's people. Acts makes that clear. But prayer is the disruptive work of God. And man, may we take one step forward in our growth of prayer as a church and as his people. Let's pray together here. Lord, we thank you for the Lord's Prayer. Thank you for the vision that it casts for us of your will for us as your people to be people of prayer. And Lord, we confess that we are weak and that we struggle with it. And so, God, we just ask that you would teach us again this week. Help us, Lord, to to practically put into motion one step of communication with, with you, our Heavenly Father, a relationship communication with the God who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand as we sing together?